Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. As I record this introduction, we've just finished hosting our two-day online rural Gothic conference with Room 207 Press. The event was amazing. Over 200 people booked to watch 10 presentations over 18 hours. The meeting chat was full of book recommendations, resources, links and information, which has all been archived for audience members to access later. A package of talks is being put together for offline sale, so if you want to catch up on some of the presentations and couldn't get a ticket, you'll be able to. And audience members will have one month's free replay access to the whole event sent to them soon. Such was the success of the event that we were asked, while it was still on, to plan more. The next two-day event is being planned now, and there will be more about that soon, but it will be on the subject of women and folk horror, and will feature an all-female lineup of speakers. In the meantime, we're hosting a one-day event for Halloween. Rural Gothic Samhain Surprise will be online on October the 31st, again with one all-access ticket. There'll be seven presentations, including theatre, live music and a range of talks, from 3pm until late UK time. That all-access ticket is just £7.50 for everything, and they're already available and selling via bit.ly slash ruralgothic. So if you want to be there, book now while you can. On this episode of the podcast, I'm chatting to author Zana Freylon about her latest book, The Lost Soul Atlas, and the wider subject of Australian folklore which she weaves into her writing. You'll be able to hear part of the book at the end of the episode. Zana is an internationally acclaimed and multi-award winning author of books for children and young adults. She's been shortlisted for the Carnegie Award, the Guardian Fiction Prize, the Prime Minister's Literary Award in Australia, and many others. And her book, The Bone Sparrow, was chosen to represent Australia for the International Board on Books for Young People. She joined me recently to chat about her love for folklore. So, good morning or evening, depending on which side of the divide we're on, and welcome Zana to the Folklore Podcast. It's lovely to have you here. It is so delightful to be here. I'm so excited. Thanks for having me. Ah, It's an absolute pleasure. Now, we are going to talk about your uh, book in a moment, The Lost Soul Atlas, which is going to be the main driving force behind this interview. But but firstly, let's learn a little bit about you and uh, how you got to this point. So tell everybody a little bit about your um, writing up to this point. Well, uh, The Lost Soul Atlas is my 11th published book. Um, I write for kids and uh, young adults. Um, I've got three picture books as part of that. Um, And then sort of a series of of fun middle grade novels. And then I sort of started to get a bit serious with my writing. Um, Well, tackling more serious issues, I should say. Um, And I've written uh, three, and The Lost Soul Atlas is the fourth book, for kind of middle grade young adult crossover. So that age, which is really hard to to find books for when they're, you know, they're they're past the middle grade. Um, They want something a bit, a bit meatier, but they're not quite ready for the young adult themes yet. So that's, that's where I really, that's where I find my headspace, I guess. 
and, and some of your books deal with uh, issues and topics that intersect with folklore possibly more than others do. The Lost Soul Atlas certainly does, which is why we're talking about it today. Um, so where does your interest in, in folklore and those kind of associated subjects come from? How did you get into that area? Yeah, well, I think, you know, there's always folklore in my books because I love it so much. So it's, it's you know, when I'm writing them and I'm really writing from um, from inside me and from my heart, the folklore comes out. I couldn't stop it if I tried, I think. Um, and folklore is something which I've always been drawn to. Um, I think it's that, that connection between uh, sort of the past which it, it, which it gives us um, and which is so important and so valuable. And there's this sort of... Um, I don't know, it's like learning, when you learn a new piece of folklore, it, it twists the way you see the world a bit. Um, like, for example, in, in Telling the Bees, your wonderful book, that information about the um, golden syrup, the label of the golden syrup. And, you know, I, I will never not see that now. And I wonder <laughs> how, many, <laughs> how many bits of folklore are, are just waiting to be rediscovered. Um, yeah, that's it. I mean, these things are always under the surface somewhere and you never know where they're going to come out, do you? Yeah, I feel it's like, you know, when you have fairy dust rubbed in your eyes and can suddenly see, the, you know, see the, the fairies and the she and the other world sitting right there where it always has been, you just haven't seen. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, with folktales, there's that, that sense of uh, eerie that's provoked and sort of standing on the cusp of something and they never overtell. So you always just get a glimpse of something. But um, I don't know, it, it connects to something, I think, deep inside us. Yes, um, yeah, it, it absolutely yeah. does, doesn't it? Um, yeah. Did you did you find that growing up, you you had it uh, in the background of your family life as well? Were were your any of your family members particularly storytellers? Um, did you learn things that way? There was there was definitely uh, a sense of storytelling in my family. Um, I have you know going sort of generations back, there were always writers in the family. Um, nothing really huge with folklore, interestingly enough. And the first time I remember I really engaged with folklore was um, I was, my parents were at a dinner party and I was, I think, about eight or nine and incredibly bored. And the person whose house we were at said, I'll go into my library and, you know, have a look around. And then he pulled out a book of Italo Calvino folktales. And he said, here, you might like to read this. And it was, you know, I was, I was there for, I don't know what time we left. It was probably way past midnight, but um, I was just entranced by these stories. So, uh, and he, and at the end of the night, he gave me the book as well, which was lovely and which I still have. Um, so that was probably my first introduction to, to the world of folk tales. So your uh, latest book, The Lost Soul Atlas, so obviously covers um, some of these things in uh, great detail um so maybe you could just start by telling everybody without giving away too many spoilers uh, a little bit about uh, the the plot of this book yeah so the plot of the lost soul atlas uh is the story of a young boy uh who wakes up in the afterlife and he's got um sort of no memories of how he got there but he very quickly has to make a decision between um going with what the gods tell him to and accepting this life of sort of blissful happiness, but with no memories um, or fighting against the gods and going on a journey to retrieve his memories um, and uh, to hopefully find his, his dad who's missing along the way. Now the afterlife plays a very big part in this story. Um, and you 
approach it in a very particular way. And I, are you basing your version of the afterlife on particular pieces of folklore or, or particular stories that are important to you and, and where you live? Yeah, well, it's, it was interesting because when I started um, writing The Lost Soul Alice and I realised that the afterlife was going to be quite a big part of it, um, I actually got the idea for it when I read an article about the ancient Egyptian Book of the Dead. Um, and it, it was exactly the kind of ideas I'd been um, searching for and it, it suddenly fit my book perfectly and I, I went, okay, this is what I'll use. So I dove quite deep down into research um, of ancient Egyptian folklore and the Book of the Dead. Uh, which, for people who don't know, is this incredible sort of set of instructions that was given to people when they died um, to help them navigate the afterlife. And it was it had things like, you know, what to say to certain gatekeepers to get through or how to fool certain um, gods that would try and stop you along the way and how to stop your heart from betraying you and things like this. Um, but uh, it, there wasn't actually one whole book of the dead. You had to sort of buy the rules which you thought would be most pertinent to you. Um, and I really love this idea. And so I've, at the beginning, I followed that really quite closely. Um, and I had scarab beetles and I had sphinxes and I sort of went down this whole path. And then I realised that actually I could, I could reinvent the afterlife and make it, you know, full of all the other things I love as well. So um, certain elements of the ancient Egyptian afterlife certainly still belong and still are there um, in, you know, there's a lot, there are trials and tribulations to get through. There are gatekeepers that have to, um, you know, you've got to answer the riddle correctly if you're going to pass this, that sort of stuff. Um, uh, and there's this aisle of eternal happiness where, you know, all your dreams and wishes wash up on the shore. Um, but then I started adding in other things, which I really love as well. So um, I'm a big fan of Celtic mythology. So um, there was, you know, there's lots of scenes where there are um, portals to the other world um, and they're seen both in the real life sections and the afterlife sections as well. Um, and then I thought, okay, what else can I add in? What other types of folklore can I bring to the story? Um, and I, I brought in who's one of my favourite folklore characters, which in the book I call the Gatherer, but um, she's very heavily based on La Loba, the wolf woman, um, who is a, a bone collector. And she lives, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote here because it's such a beautiful sentence. She lives in a hidden place that everyone knows, but that few have ever seen. And I just, I, I love that. That's so stunning language. But she travels along the land and she collects that which is in danger of being lost to the world forever. And so she picks up the bones of these creatures, these endangered creatures. And when she has a full skeleton, then she lights a fire and she sings to it. And as she sings, the bones begin to shake and wobble and they begin to click together and fur grows back and it begins to breathe and then it opens its eyes and is a creature once more and comes back into being. Um, so I, I, I put her in there and um, that was that was wonderful to write. I really enjoyed being able to spend time with, with the characters and the folklore that I really wanted to engage deeply with. I want to talk about a couple of the other characters as well before we move on to talk about the kind of um, boundaries that are so important to your story and, and the crossing between this world and, and the afterlife. Um, and there are a couple of characters that I wonder where, what influences you're using as well. One is that, um, so your main protagonist, Twig, um, is accompanied throughout the afterlife um, by a raven. Um, and I, I would like you to tell us the name of your raven. <laughs> well, 
I call him Clack, which um, I'm probably, you know, as Twig always does, mispronouncing, but um, Clack is, is how I see him being called. Excellent. Because this comes up so much in the book, is that no, you don't pronounce it that, you pronounce it this with exactly the same spelling that, that I had to ask you how you pronounce it. Um, <laughs> why did you choose the, um, the image of a raven to accompany Twig through the afterlife? There, well, there are a number of answers to this question, and they're all equally true because they sort of all happened at the same time. Um, I was searching for a guardian to accompany Twig, and I happened to be uh, in a museum in Scotland, um, in Glasgow, and it's this amazing museum. And as we were walking through, and of course, you know, I was I was <laughs> deep in my in my head, I was deep inside my book trying to work out all the plot problems I was having. Um, and we walked into a room full of skeleton animals, and I went, ah, that's it. These the, the guardians can be these skeleton animals, and there are you know there are massive great elk there are um what's the bird there's this fantastic bird that no longer exists anymore and i can't think of its name um and then just sort of in the corner is this little raven skeleton (laughs) which should have looked a bit pathetic but it didn't it looked really fantastic and it it struck me that you know this would be this would be my um almost pitiful guardian who really was much more than that um and it fit in very well with with all the afterlife um sorry, not afterlife, with all the raven mythology that I'd been searching for anyway. Um, I'd been searching for different animal mythology and folklore to kind of work out who who the guardian would be. Um, and birds were featuring quite strongly because so many birds are, are seen as psychopomps and carrying the souls of the dead from um, the land of the living to the afterlife. So I sort of thought it would probably be a bird of some description. Um, and... The raven just had so much going for it. So, you know, there's there's Morrigan from old Celtic mythology who in her crow form is um, represents both death and rebirth, which fit really, really well with the story. Um, there are, ravens are often seen as messengers of the gods. Um, and they're that classic trickster character, which I really, really loved and um, wanted to work with. I think that's an important element as well, isn't it? Is that role of the the trickster and um, and the fact that Crook is is perhaps not necessarily the uh, the most competent guardian every step of the way, although you don't know for certain whether that is truly the case or, or whether perhaps it's just his manner. And I, I think in these sorts of stories, that that trickster character often works really well as an animal. I'm I'm minded of. Um, we the interview that we did with um, Sophie Anderson when she was talking about um, her um, book, the girl, the girl who speaks bear, um, and her character Mousetrap, who who again, you know, is is a very very strong animal character in that story, and also something of a trickster. And I, I think that there's a there's kind of an important element to to keep a protagonist on the straight and narrow, but but in a in a way that um, perhaps overcomes the seriousness of the situation and just throws in a bit of a bit of light entertainment as well. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the trickster character I think is a really important one, um, especially when you're telling a story that has, you know, some issues in it which which might be tricky. It's you need that you need that sort of relief. Um, and also, the beauty of the trickster character is, even when they're being ridiculous, you know that at some level they're actually imparting knowledge which the character's going to need. So it's really fun to work with um, as an author as well. Yes, absolutely. Now, now mo- moving on to this, this whole afterlife concept itself, 
um, you're looking at um, crossings between different parts of, of the afterlife uh, as a very important element. And in folklore, of course, these kind of boundaries are always very important. Any boundary state in folklore is important. Things are neither one thing or another. They're somewhere in between day and night, dawn and dusk being liminal mm. places, boundary states. Um, how important are those boundaries to your concept of an afterlife in this story? Yeah, I mean, I'm really, really drawn to those those liminal places and those those boundaries between um, what we know and what exists, but we might might not see. Um, and then I and I often have been, you know, it's the the dark place in the in the corner of the garden. That was the that was the place that always drew me to it as a kid. So. Um, I think you know in a in a story talking about the afterlife it, it it makes so much sense to have these have these crossings um and you know one of the things I really loved doing when I was looking at the folklore of the afterlife and putting all these sort of familiar tropes in was that I also put things in there like uh seances and reading the fate and the tea leaves and the idea was you know that the spirits were actually guiding people through these things because I really did love that idea that you know there is some way of um, connecting with with spirits or the dead or whatever, um, and so to be able to use that and, and put it in the story in a way which um, also helped to guide the character as well. You know, it was it was through the crossings that he gradually res- got his memory back and um, could could remember how he died and, and what he had to do to make it up um, to the people he had left behind. I guess. And, uh, and another um, way in which this kind of crossing or boundary state I thought was really important as well is in uh, one of Twig's strongest friends through through this story which is the character of Flea Um, and and Flea is represented um, as a non-binary character so uses they them pronouns rather than um, he or she Um, and I thought that was a really important thing to do and, and something that you don't see enough of, particularly in, in young adult literature, which is a place where if anywhere, perhaps that is an area that should be explored more. Why did you choose to represent Flea in this way? And perhaps you ought to say a little bit about the character of Flea as well and what, what they do and what they represent in this story. Yeah. So Flea was actually the first character that, ever came to me and was the the start of this whole whole journey um and I was deep inside another manuscript um and I would just drop the kids at school and I was on my way home and I got this very sudden intense image of a scruffy young kid holding out their hands to me and saying come with me I can show you how to fly and I had this sort of incredible moment where I was struck by how strong the image was and then I somehow ended up back at my house with no memory of having driven there. You know, as, as, as we authors do, it tends to be these quite dangerous times when you're so deep in your plot that everything else vanishes. Um, and I tried really hard to fit Flea into the book or to fit that, that character and that image into the book I was writing, and it just didn't work. So I, I threw it out and started The Lost Soul Atlas instead. Um, so Flea's a really special character, really powerful character uh, for me particularly. And they are Flea's best friend. Um, they're sort of 
uh, sorry, they are Twig's best friend. Um, they're sort of the, the guide for the real world action, I guess. They're the ones who um, who take Twig into their family when he's, he's lost his dad, which happens quite early on in the, in the book. His dad goes missing and he's got no one and he finds himself on the street and, and flee, you know, befriends him and, um, and takes him to belong to their family, which is this sort of group of um, street kids, but living in a, in a really strong community uh, in a graveyard. Um, and it's, it's really interesting linking Flea's non-binary um, character to, to liminal spaces. And I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that before, but it is really interesting. And, you know, when I wrote Flea, I wrote them as non-binary um, mainly because my daughter is, she identifies as genderqueer and uses female pronouns. But um, when she was transitioning, we found there were no gender non-binary, genderqueer characters, especially in, in kids' fiction. Um, there was quite a lot of, well, not quite a lot. There were some non-fiction books aimed at teenagers, but there was nowhere for my daughter to see herself reflected. So uh, I knew I wanted to have a, a gender non-binary character in the book, and I knew that I didn't want that to be the focus of the book. You know, the Flea's character is, Flea's non-binary um, they're also really good with a slingshot. You know, there's, there's all this stuff about them and that's just part of who they are and part of their identity. So um, it was really important for me that, that I represented Flea and their gender, but, but it, that was it. It was just a small sort of toss-away remark at, it, in conversation between the two kids and then we move on. But I, I think it is so important for, for all of the reasons that you say as well. Um, but also there are a couple of other things, or, or at least struck me in that way and that is one is this parallel between Flea who is such an important character to Twig and their actions and and the importance of these liminal states and these boundary transitions uh, in the folkloric representation of the afterlife and, and I think there are real parallels between the two there as well and I think whether that was intentional or unintentional actually it comes across really strongly isn't that funny? Yeah. And I think, you know, it certainly wasn't intentional, but um, I, I absolutely see it now. And I'm going to start claiming it was intentional from now on. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's one of those things, isn't it, that we do, we see very much the world in, in terms of binaries um, yes. when it's, it's, it's really not. And that's, that is the thing about the afterlife. You know, it's, it's, it is shady. It is liminal. It is, um, you know, you're never quite told what it is. It's sort of half seen. So yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, and I suppose one other way, if you want to approach it from a folkloric angle of looking at that as well, is the fact that inherently nothing has any meaning to it. You know, a, a table is a oh. table, um, but it, it's just it's a piece of wood with four other pieces of wood attached to it. If you turn it through 180 degrees and put it the other way up, it's something else entirely, and you use it however you see fit and that mm. applies to everything around us um, you know as symbols have no meaning until we ascribe that meaning to them culturally mm. um and i you know the, the same is true there with with this kind of um transitory state as well it has a different meaning for different people so you may not have intended the meaning to come across in that way but as soon as somebody else ascribes that meaning to it, then it can become an important part of, of what's been created. And that's true of 
every folk tale, every trope within folklore, depending on how you culturally look at it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's fascinating, really interesting. One other character that I want to ask you about from the folkloric angle as well is is your villain, if she is a villain uh, in this piece. Um, and that is a character that you describe as a hoblin. Tell us a little bit about her. So the hoblin was perhaps the most fun to write of all. And uh, there was a stage in the book where it wasn't working and I couldn't work out what wasn't working about it. Um, and I, and the hoblin didn't exist, or if she did at that point, she was, she was quite a minor character. And I realised that what I had to do was to folklore it up a bit. So um, I, I brought her into it more. I had her as a, um, you know, she is, is definitely this, this villainous character. Um, and her name changed. She, she, you know, she had about 10 different, different versions of what I'd call her in the end. Um, and there's this fantastic folk tale, um, which I don't think is originally Australian, but we certainly see it as Australian here. And I think originally it might have come from England, I'm not sure, called the Hoblins. And the Hoblins are these, these terrifying creatures. And I knew that I wanted her to have that same, you know, terrifying sense about her. So that was, that was where, um, did I say the Hoblins? The Hobbyers. They, they are called the Hobbyers, these terrifying creatures. And, uh, and so I took, I took that and changed it to the Hoblin to, for my villain. Uh, and are you drawing on any of the kind of traditional fairy folklore around hobs, goblins, hobgoblins, all of those elements as well in creating this world? She's essentially kind of a um, mafia mother, isn't she, in, in a lot of yeah, ways? She, she it def definitely is. And she also has that, um, you know, that supernatural quality where, you know, she won't be there and then suddenly the, she's just there and you don't know how she got there and equally she'll just sort of disappear. You'll go and look at something, you'll turn back and she'll be gone. Um, so, yes, I was, I was definitely drawing on that sense. I guess it was probably more... Um, more closely related to uh, sort of the she and Irish, Irish folktales and Irish mythology that you know uh, are not necessarily evil, but they they they'll mess with you if you mess with them. So um, there was that that double sense with her as well, where you're never quite sure where she stands either. Now you, as as you have mentioned once or twice, and is obvious from your accent, you are based in Australia, um, so how much of a reflection of your own country and culture goes into your writing in terms of your folkloric representation, do you think? Yeah, well, it's really interesting because um, growing up in Australia and um, I also was born in Melbourne and then we moved to America for my early childhood um, and we spent quite a lot of time in Italy and then we moved back to Melbourne. So I've kind of moved about a lot as well. But you know, growing up in Australia where, apart from the Indigenous Australians, we've all come here from somewhere else, the folklore has come with us. So there's this sort of incredible tapestry of folklore and folk tales. Um, and I love that. I love the diaspora and the spread of folk tales and, and following that and seeing how, how the stories themselves travel um, with the people. I find that really exciting. And so I guess I grew up with a whole mix of folk tales and folklore so you know there was Italo Calvino there was Grimm's um my heritage is uh Bulgarian and Scottish and Welsh and if you go back far enough Irish as well um 
And then there was a European folk tales, which I loved. And Baba Yaga was always my favorite. That's actually probably who in hindsight, the Hoblum is most like that Baba Yaga character who, um, you know, again, was, was a, she could be this horrible witch, but then she might also help you if she, if she decided to. So um, that's probably who it was most, most based on. Um, yeah. And so we sort of had this, I, well, I sort of had this real mix of folk tales. Um, and the only folk tale I've, I've got from my family was one which my great aunt told me. Um, and it was, she came across from Bulgaria. I think she was born here, but, you know, sh only very shortly after my family moved from Bulgaria. And they had no books in their house. And her mother only had one folk tale that, that she remembers. And it's this, this story about, I haven't been able to find it. I've, I've searched for it. But it's this story about this family who live in this forest and over this particularly hard, cold winter, um, it, there becomes less and less to eat. And, you know, the chicken dies and the cow stops giving milk and the children are getting hungrier and hungrier. And each night they look at the, their empty plates and say, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. And then eventually the father, having gone off for another hunting trip where there are no animals and no berries to pick, comes back empty-handed and he said, you know, enough, if we, don't, if we don't do something, we're all going to die. And he instructs them to get out their spinning wheels and he says, we will spin and we will spin and we will spin and whoever's thread breaks first, we will eat. And so <laughs> they get out their spinning wheels and they start spinning and spinning and spinning and the mother's watching and she sees her youngest daughter's thread getting thinner and thinner and thinner and just at the last moment she breaks her own thread and they eat her and they survive the winter on little bits of mother. So <laughs> this is... This was the, the, the only sort of folktale told me by my family. And the amazing thing about this, my great aunt as a child would ask her mother to tell her this story over and over again. And then whenever her favourite meal was cooked, and it was only ever her favourite meal, she would take it and hide it under the couch cushion and gaze at the plate and say, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, before going and retrieving it and, and <laughs> eating it, which we won't go into the psychology of that. but. <laughs> yeah oh that's brilliant um and, and you forget don't you sometimes with so so many of our folk tales having been through the either the the victorian rewriting process or or the later disneyfication process of of ending changing and, and character changing to make them a, a slightly happier experience just how much trauma there is in a, a, in a lot of these old folk tales as well. There's a, there are always people losing limbs or eating each other or, or Absolutely. I know, I know. Well, the, the folk tale I was telling about before, the um, Hoblins, uh, sorry, the Hobbiers, gosh. Um, the, I, I took a printout of the introduction because it, it's a fantastic introduction. So this was a story which was, um, printed as like a school reader for young kids about six or seven from about the 1920s. And I think it was still going around to the 1970s as well. And the introduction for it says, all the gnomes, hobgoblins, gremlins, ghouls, zombies, spooks, spectres, phantoms, shapes, shades, wraiths, doppelgangers, demons, familiars, banshees, toll, trolls, ogres, Succuba, Furies, Harpies, Gorgons, Werewolves and Bunyips are nothing to the horror of the Hobbiers. Skip, skip, skipping on the ends of their toes. <laughs> this is in this kids' readers. I mean, I can imagine my kids reading at age six and being completely terrified. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and you can understand why these stories got rewritten in many cases. But but um, yeah, we must not lose sight of just a... how horrific some of them were. Uh, oh, I love the darkness of the folk tales, and I love it. It's great. So finally, tell us what is next for you. Aside from your PhD, obviously, you can't just do that. You My need PhD. to keep writing because you're an author, and and that's what we do. Where it are you certainly going? Is. Where are you going next? Um, I'm actually, and I've just got the finished first draft sitting on my computer tonight. I'm co-writing um, a book which I've never done before with this another author, Bred McDibble, who I really admire. Um, and we've we sort of both wrote our halves of the book and then put them together. It was this amazing experience of of seeing this this story take on a new life form. Um, and uh, my section starts with with a bog body. So although it was originally meant to be set in Australia, it's, you know, we, we while we do have bogs, we don't have bogs with sort of um, people being sacrificed. So it's an unnamed, unnamed country anyway. But um, I really love bog folklore as well. So I was very excited to be able to dip into that a bit. And, and, and again, you know, the liminal spaces. So, yeah. And when are we thinking we might see that reach the publication stage? Oh, goodness. Um, uh, what are we first draft? Give us, give us at least a year, I'd say. Yeah, I do have, I do have uh, in the short term a picture book coming out um, next year, early next year, called The Curiosities. Um, and yeah, that's that's about it. I'm working on another another junior fiction, but that'd be a way off too, I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah, and, and PhDs do take a bit of work as well, so you're going to be dividing right? your time there, I think. <laughs> <laughs> But it does mean I get to read up on lots of folklore and just, you know, enjoy the stories and claim it's all for my PhD. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. You can't possibly go wrong with that, can you? Uh, so The Lost Soul Atlas is published by Orion and is available in all good bookshops, probably quite a lot of bad bookshops as well. And online, if you are interested in reading it, do please get yourselves a copy. Try and support your independent bookshops first if you can. Uh, otherwise, it is freely available along with Zana's other titles. Zana, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and talk about this book. I would like, if you're willing at some point, to bring you back and and um, to chat about your work more generally in the um, other strand that I'm looking to put together for our YouTube channel on um, folklore books and, and book club stuff generally. So if, you're, if you'd like to come back again and talk about the rest of your writing, that would be wonderful. I would love to. Excellent. We shall arrange that in the future as well to talk about your other stuff. But in the meantime, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you, Mark. It was wonderful to have the opportunity to chat to Zana, and I'm delighted to say that she will be back to talk about her other writing soon on the Folklore Podcast Book Club. This is now releasing on our YouTube channel, so do head over to have a look at some of the content coming out, and please subscribe to the channel to get notifications when more episodes and other videos are uploaded. This podcast, The Book Club, and all of the other resources we're creating are available free of charge and without adverts, thanks to your generous support. Without it, we will not continue making what we do. We've now made it even easier to help us. You can now join, or if you're already there, update the Patreon page as an annual member, 
which gives you discounted access to all of the exclusive supporters' content which we put on there at your level. The Patreon is the most important support that allows us to put in the many hours that we do each week on the podcast and other folklore projects. Without it, we won't be here anymore. We're at a stage now where we can start to generate more additional content, and both Patreon supporters and main podcast listeners will be benefiting from that soon. So thanks to everyone who helps in this way. If you want to join, please visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. And if you're already there and want to update your membership, you can do so now. There's also a new donate link on the front page of the Folklore Podcast website for one-off donations if you want to help us to continue making programmes. That's at www.thefolklorepodcast.com. If you can't help out in these ways, then please just engage with our social media, especially our popular Twitter feed, and share our episodes and other conversations to bring in new audiences. If you're listening to this episode on release, then don't forget that the next in our popular Folklore Podcast Lectures series is coming up on Saturday the 3rd of October, where historian Holly Medland will be discussing The Wild Hunt. Tickets for this are available at bit.ly slash tfplectures. On the next episode of the podcast, I'll be hearing from authors Matt Brown and P.G. Bell and the Welsh Children's Laureate Eloise Williams about their plans to bring out a brand new dual-language reworking of the Mabinogion, especially for children. Until then, here's Tracy reading a chapter from Zana's book the Lost Soul Atlas. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Chapter 12 Unbecoming Twig gasped, all the air pushed from his body, and then he knew himself again. He could remember. He felt as if he had emerged from a fever and realised how empty he had been before, a dried husk of himself. Ah, Scrimkins, now you've gone and done it like. Crook clicked his beak and paced up and down, moaning and muttering, no, 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 under his breath. The gods say send up a flare, but you go and fight the forgetting instead. The gods say don't worry, we'll find you, and you go on the run. You're a rebel now, and there's no fool in anyone. I'm sorry, Crook, but Crook, get it right. I don't want you to get in trouble. You should go back. Tell the officials you never found me, or... Ach, no. It's too late for that. I already logged you in like, didn't I? They know we're together. They'll obliterate us both. Oh, well. I'm a rebel now, too. An unwilling bystander, it's true. Pulled into you a mess by no doing of mine own. But a rebel all's the same. On your head be it, boyo. I'm sorry. I should hope so. Crook pecked Twig affectionately on the ear, ruffled his bones and nestled into his shoulder. So the crossing is through there? Twig peered into the dark of the tunnel. He wondered how he would even fit. Now listen, Boyle. She only told you half of it when she said that bit about getting carried away by your memories and forgetting to come back. And I'm not trying to change your mind or nothing. I can see you are as stubborn as she is, 
but I wouldn't be a guardian if I didn't warn you properly, like. Warn me? It's all very technical. But the thing of it is, souls that get carried away by their memories become lost in them, and they don't ever come out. You start fading. The more time you dwell in your memories, the less you are here, in this moment. You would last for a time in the shadows of your memories, but then... Crook shook his head softly. Then you simply unbecome. Your memories no longer exist, and it's like you never, ever were. Unbecome? Twig thought of what that would mean. To never have existed. To never have known or be known. Any old soul can open a crossing, but it takes a proper strong mind to claw itself back. It won't be easy. It'll be near impossible, if you ask me. Impossible, Twig whispered, and had a flash of memory. Impossible is just what they say when they don't want you to try. I'll come out, though, Crook. I've got you. You won't let me get carried away and lost. I know you won't. Twig smiled at Crook. So what did she mean about appeasing the sentries? Who are they? Twig didn't want to imagine what could be waiting for him at the end of the tunnel. Oh, they's the absolute worst, they's. They think they're clever, but really they are terrible bores. All with their silly little riddle what's-its and all. Oh, I am so wise. If you don't answer right, I gets to eat you, so answer carefully. When has threatening someone with becoming lunch ever helped the brain? If they was really smart, they'd know that. Ridiculous, the lot of them. Riddles? Eat you? Lunch? Are you feeling all right, boyo? Crook turned his head to peer with one eye at Twig. I warned you I did. Yous are the one who went and put that silly skeleton key on. Twig took a deep breath. So what do I do? What if I don't know the answer? How am I to know? I admit I am very wise and a fount of all knowledge, but this is outside my area of expertise, like. She said to use the atlas, so... Oh, I know, I know, I got it. Twig leaned forward. When you see the sentry, don't wait for the riddle. Just say, hello, nice sentry, I have brought you a present, I have. And then bring out the atlas and whack them over the head with it. Might need a few goings over, depending on size and that, but you've a good arm on you, you'll be fine. Crook took a closer look at Twig's arms. Well, you'll give it a good go, anyhow. I'm not sure that's what she meant. Twig turned back to the map of the Wilder Forest. There must be something in the atlas to help him. Some clue. Twig ran his fingers across the parchment. Trees towered and beasts stalked across the page. Arrows pointed off the map in every direction. To Central Station. To the Sea of Finality. North lies the Silver Mountains. Here flows the Lake of Everwonder. And scrawled across the map, in varying pens and languages and scripts, were notes and snatches of advice. Through the Golden Gates is an eternity of forgetting. Ignore the signs. It's not only the beasts that lurk in the forest. Eyes and ears are everywhere. 
Follow the trail of little people, but keep hold of your valuables. Garden gnomes are only interested in... But then the word had faded and Twig couldn't make out the rest. Never enter a crossing without someone to call you back. Twig paused at the next note. It was written outside the meeple mound, by the uncircled symbol of the key. To the brave souls who went in and unbecame. Next to it was a small pressed blue flower. A forget-me-not. Twig touched it gently and thought how they had been his da's favourite flower. You come with me, right? To help? Crook looked up from where he was scratching a picture of himself onto the cave wall and writing Bird Big God under it. What's that, then? Oh, sure. I'll be with you. I'm your guardian. I'm always with you. But I won't be helping. I hate riddles, me. Hurts the head. You'll have to figure thems out on your own. Twig sighed. He took a deep breath and squeezed himself into the tunnel.